Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 11. We're only going to look at two verses today because it deals exclusively on what's going on in Israel at the time of the tribulation. And as you're turning there, the title of today's message is The Substitutes Used for True Spirituality. The substitutes that you and I will use for true spirituality if we're not careful. As many of you know, I grew up Catholic, and unfortunately, I was using a substitute for true spirituality in that false religion. And as you know, it's a religion that has a lot of rituals, a lot of sacraments and different things of that nature. So when I grew up in it, I thought I was being a Christian by doing the rituals, by doing the acts in the the church. So like now would be a time of Lent and we would be doing stations of the cross and we would be doing all kinds of things, going to the priest for confession and getting ready for Easter. But it was all ritualistic. It was all just outwardly. It was nothing inwardly. I was lost as a ball in high weeds and didn't know who Jesus was. I knew of him, but I didn't know him on a personal level. And I grew up like that. And I finally realized in my life that I was using a religion as a substitute for true spirituality. Because true spirituality, according to the Bible, is faith in God. And then after you get saved, then it's a life of obedience to Him. And what I was doing, I finally realized it, I was substituting the rituals, the form of the religion, for my lack of faith and for my lack of obedience. Because I can tell you right now, I did the rituals thinking, hey, I'm good with God. Hey, I went to church checklist. I went to confession checklist. I talked to the priest checklist, and I'm good. And then the rest of the week, I live like a devil. That's how you do it when you're substituting true spirituality with a false spirituality. And unfortunately, that happens in Protestantism as well. People will substitute things for really a lack of faith or a lack of obedience in their own walk with the Lord. We'll talk about that later in the application, but we're going to talk about Israel because what we're to learn from Israel, whether it's future Israel or past Israel, is Israel teaches us lessons about ourselves. Yes, we're going to look at a nation today. We're going to look at the country of Israel and what's currently going on and what they're going to do in the future. And we're going to learn from their mistakes a lot of times. That's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we actually learn from Israel. So I know the topic today will be on a geopolitical level. We're going to be on a higher level than just a personal application, but I'll segue into a personal application. But what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to learn from Israel and the moves they make, sometimes that are dumb, sometimes are good. But we're going to learn from that nation today. The setting then becomes this. We're at the midpoint of the tribulation. There's a seven-year tribulation, we're at the midpoint, and we're in a pause or a parenthesis in the book of Revelation, and Revelation does that. It's chronological, but then it stops, and it gives a parenthesis to kind of tell you, hey, by the way, this was going on prior to all of this or concurrently with it. And the issue that has been going on concurrently with the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments is Israel. The whole tribulation period called Daniel's 70th week 
Jeremiah calls Jacob's trouble. The tribulation is about Israel, not about the church because the church has been removed. So when we talk about Israel, we're talking that even today from a geopolitical matter, they are going to be used one day in the future by God, and you have to come to grips with that. As John Howler said last week, we had him. Only about 10% of the churches even talk about Israel, even currently or future-wise. Otherwise, they, a lot of churches have written Israel off. They've done replacement theology, and they've replaced Israel with the church, and they're on their merry way thinking they're going to usher in the kingdom on their own. It's crazy. But nonetheless, as you'll see in the book of Revelation, it's all about Israel. It's all about it. So what we're going to learn today is a mistake that Israel makes. It may sound exciting what they're doing because it regards their third temple, but at the end of the day, it's a huge mistake. What you're going to study today is one of the passages, and it's through deduction. When we place all the passages together about the end times, we deduce that there must be a third temple that will be built in the future during the tribulation. You see this in Revelation, you see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and other various places in Scripture. And when you put them all together, it presupposes a third temple that Israel will build on the Temple Mount. And when you make that statement... It brings a lot more questions than answers because guess what's on the Temple Mount today? A desecration on the Temple Mount with a mosque on it and written on that mosque in Arabic, it says God has no son. It is a desecration. It doesn't belong to the Muslims. It belongs to the Jews. It belongs to Messiah, really, God. And we're going to talk about that. But what that means, it implies that somehow the Jews are able to build their temple on the Temple Mount in the future. How that happens, I'm not quite sure. But we're going to unpack that today. Now, let me set the stage a little bit further before we get into the text, because we're only looking at two verses, but it's all about the temple. What happens? What happens from here on out? As you see in the the video prophecy update, Israel's surrounded by enemies. Israel is the target for all the world, and they will be. Psalm 83, I believe, happens, and the Psalm 83 is a, if you look at the coalition there, is an all-Arab invasion of bordering countries of Israel that is yet to happen in history. That will happen one day, and I think prior to the tribulation, and Israel's attacked. Well, Israel throttles them and increases their borders because of Psalm 83. After that, I think, and I could be wrong, that Gog of Magog invasion happens to Israel, and the players are getting in line for that as well. Putin's there, Iran's there, Turkey. That, those are the three coalition partners, along with Sudan and Libya, that will join that, that coalition. It's a non-Arab invasion, but yet it is an Islamic invasion, as Psalm 83 is an Islamic invasion as well. So you have an Arab invasion and a non-Arab invasion, And it looks like the Middle East is getting ready for that. No doubt about that. And that's all prior to the tribulation. That means that you and I can see that stuff happen in our lifetime if the rapture doesn't happen. We're only promised to be removed prior to the tribulation, not pre-tribulational events. Nonetheless, where is it all going? Eventually, we go to a marker in Scripture that after all this goes down with Gog of Magog, Psalm 83... 
the little horn, the Antichrist, rises out of nowhere and cuts a deal with Israel. And I want to show you that. This is in Daniel chapter 9. And this sets the stage. And it says, then he, this is the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant, or we would call a treaty, a peace treaty, or uh, in using our common vernacular, but a covenant with many for one week. Let's just leave that up there for a second. Notice it says many, not all. Okay? Many of Israel's leadership will cut a deal with the Antichrist, but not all of Israel will do it. The remnant refuses to do it. But Israel as a nation will eventually cut a deal. I don't know what that means for Netanyahu. I don't know what that means. I don't know if he does it, if, if we're living in that kind of time, or if a liberal faction of Israel takes over leadership of Israel in the future. I don't know. And then they cut a deal. But right now, Israel is split politically. You have to understand that. There are two lines going through Israel, just like in two lines going through America. There's conservatism, and then there's leftist liberalism which dominates America and dominates Israel, by the way, as well. And Israel is at a crossroads where they're splitting this as well. So I think the many are that liberal left that is willing to cut a deal with the Antichrist. And that's what's happening. And it will happen in the future. Not all, but many will do this. And the idea of one week means Daniel's referring to a seven-year treaty. That's what he does. He does a seven-year treaty. But the question then remains about this is why? Why would Israel cut a deal with the Antichrist? Well, they don't know he's the Antichrist, obviously. They don't, they don't think he's the devil's son. Uh, they think he's a nice guy. They think this guy is the man with the plan. He's going to solve our problems. Well, we do have a clue about the, one of the reasons why, and it comes from Isaiah. I want to show you that right now. This is Isaiah 28, 14 through 15. It's a long passage, but... Just let me show you a little clip of this. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men. It's talking about the leadership of Israel in the future, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, future Israel. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. That's what God thinks about this peace treaty with the Antichrist. He says it's a covenant of death, a covenant with Sheol. We are in agreement. And here's the reason. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. That's the reason Isaiah says that Israel cuts a deal with the Antichrist, is to escape an overflowing scourge. What does that mean? That's a military invasion. That's what that's talking about. So it doesn't come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. So the idea is, I'm going to do a covenant with Antichrist, to avoid some type of military invasion. I don't know what that means. I don't know what military invasion it could be. We know in the tribulation, the first part of the tribulation, World War III breaks out. The whole world goes to war. Maybe it's to avoid that. I don't know. Or maybe Israel's just tired of being invaded. They've had Psalm 83. They've had Gog and Magog. And they've been successful through God's help. But maybe they're just tired of all the invasions. I don't know. All of this is conjecture on my part at this point. But this is right where the point that prophecy experts come in and say, perhaps this is what allows Israel to rebuild their temple on the temple site. Because Psalm 83 and Gog of Magog will virtually wipe out 
most of the Muslim population on this planet by those two invasions, at least the armies that attack Israel. Psalm 83 takes, about, takes away the Muslims in the neighboring countries. Gog of Magog, God actually does this, wipes out the Muslim invasion on the mountains of Israel, where this is why prophecy experts come back and say, this perhaps is why the Antichrist will allow them to do a deal to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. I mean, I don't know. It's conjecture. That's our best guess. But somehow, whether it's through the Antichrist deal or just through just military conquest, Israel gets back on the Temple Mount and starts rebuilding their temple. And we call it the Third Temple or it's what's called the Tribulation Temple. Okay, I know that's a lot, but that has to be stated. We have to know the context because here's what happens. We jump into the chapter 11, and John just assumes you know all that. He just says, I'm sure you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, so what I'm about to throw out to you, you have to be up to speed, is what John's trying to say in the book of Revelation. So now, let's go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, and now we have that background ready to read the text. It says, then I was given a reed, or a kalamos, like a measuring rod. A rabdos is the Greek in this. And look what the angel says to do with this reed. It's a measuring reed. This is what they would take out of the Jordan River to do measuring of their houses and things of that nature. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure what? The temple of God. See, it presupposes a temple on the Temple Mount. The altar and those who worship there. Let's stop there and, 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 and analyze that just so we can understand what John's trying to do. This angel is giving John a measuring reed, and the measuring reed is what they would do with the measuring reed. They would use it for like yardsticks in, in our common vernacular, and that's how they would measure things. And they usually measure things by cubits, about 18 inches. Okay, So they'd have this large reed. That's how they would measure their homes and things. Well, the angel is saying, I need you to do a measuring read and go out, and I want you to measure the future third temple, the future tribulation temple, with this measuring rod. Now, what it is, the measuring rod, is a metaphor for the Word of God because this temple is being measured by John to show him it doesn't measure up. It's weighed in the balances, and it's found wanting. And he's going to say that this is the standard, this measuring reed is the standard, and this temple doesn't meet the standard. So it's just kind of like in common vernacular, it doesn't meet the Bible's authorization. Let me give you a little hint. This temple is not sanctioned by God. I'll show you later in the, the sermon, it is of the Jews' own doing. And because of that, because it wasn't sanctioned by God, because God didn't tell the Jews to do this, it is not an acceptable temple according to Scripture. That's where this is going. That's why he has John measuring things. Okay. Let me go back to Isaiah 28 because it gives a little clue about what's happening here. And this is, remember, this is the passage about the covenant of death that they're in the, uh, with the Antichrist with. Notice what it says in Isaiah 28 further on this. Also, I will make justice what? The measuring line. 
like the measuring reed John is using, and righteousness, the plummet. He's going to measure what Israel's doing in this, this period of time. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. The lies, because the covenant of lies that Israel made with the Antichrist to hide from. And the waters will overflow the hiding place. I will flush you out, Israel, for doing this covenant with the Antichrist. And guess who he's going to use to flush them out? The Antichrist. Because guess what Antichrist does? He turns on them. And so the very covenant they get into with him is broken by him at the three-and-a-half-year mark, and he goes after them to wipe every Jew off the face of the planet. Your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand when, you, when the overflowing scourge passes through. Now notice that. You made a covenant to prevent this, but I'm going to let it happen to you. Then you will be trampled down by it, and absolutely According to Zechariah 13, if you read that passage, Antichrist will destroy two-thirds of Israel's population. It's the Holocaust 10.0. I mean, it, it just ramps it up. You think Hitler was bad. Antichrist will just pursue them and try to wipe them out completely till only one-third of Israel remains towards the end of the tribulation, which will represent the remnant of Israel. Why? Let's take a break and, and figure out why does Satan want to destroy every Jew on this planet? Why does he make the people of this world anti-Semitic for no apparent reason? Why are most churches in replacement theology or what's called supersessionism or to that effect, it leads into anti-Semitism? Why are they like that? Why are liberal churches anti-Semitic? I can tell you one reason and one reason only. It is incumbent upon the Jews to accept Messiah as Lord and Savior for him to come back. The second coming is predicated on Israel's acceptance of him. So what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to prevent the second coming, and he's trying to do it on a technicality. What do you mean? Well, his theory, I guess if you can watch how he's trying to do this, is to wipe every Jew off the planet before the time comes, and if there's no Jew to come back, Jesus can't come back. And then he can go before God and says, you're a liar. You're a liar, and then because you're a liar, you can't judge me because you're a liar. And so Satan is trying to get off on a technicality, and the way he thinks he's going to do it is try to kill every Jew on the planet. He gets very close to doing it, but God preserves that remnant. But this is what he's talking about. And, and, and back to the temple, this temple doesn't measure up to God's standard because God hasn't issued it. Jump to verse 2 in Revelation. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. That's us. That's the world. There's only two types of people in the world, Jew and Gentile. That's it. There's only two classifications. And they will tread the holy city, Jerusalem, underfoot for 42 months. Basically, this passage then in, in Revelation 11:2 is saying, you only have three and a half more years for the Gentiles to trample down Jerusalem until the return of Messiah. So this is tacked on to our time period. This, this statement goes all the way back to Daniel. It's called the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles. Now, I think I put in your bulletin, if you want to grab that real quick, and I think we have a picture of it. 
just so you understand what he's talking about, because when he throws that down, it'll be trampled on by the Gentiles, then he presupposes that you understand Daniel's timeline and Daniel's vision of the metallic man, as you see in the picture. And, and then in chapter 7, he sees these, these empires as a beast. But suffice it to say, we'll just stay with the metallic man because it's a little bit easier to understand. What Daniel had initially saw back in his day when he was in Babylon, he saw an image of a metallic man. It was made of different metals starting from precious all the way to iron mixed with clay. And what God was trying to show Nebuchadnezzar, and then Daniel interpreted the dream, is there are going to be four Gentile empires that control Jerusalem and the Temple Mount until the return of the Messiah, even through the first coming. And as you can see, the first empire was the Babylonian Empire, which represents the head. Then the second empire was the Medo-Persia Empire under several kings. The third, the Grecian Empire, which was the torso, was broken into two stages, the United States under Alexander the Great, which was prophesied in Scripture, by the way. And then the four division stage that broke up after Alexander died, his four, his four generals took the empire, and the empire broke up into four uh, places. And then the fourth empire that Daniel predicted is what's called the Beast Empire. We know that as the Roman Empire. But notice the Roman Empire is still with us. The Roman Empire has not went away. It is still with us. In Jesus' day, it was under the United stage. Okay? What happened to the Roman Empire, it broke up, and that's why there's two legs of the, the metallic man. The empire broke up into east and west. By the way, today, it is still in that division. The eastern side is controlled by Russia, the czars. Do you know what czar means? Caesar. The western leg is in western Europe. Do you know what they call the kings in Germany? Kaiser. Caesar. So the two legs of the Roman Empire are still with us. And you say, well, they're not like they were in Jesus' day. You're right. They exist, but you don't see what's called their imperial form. Imperialism is the hallmark of the beast empire, which means that we put our own people on location to rule and govern that location. Right now, you're not seeing that. You don't see a Pontius Pilate, so to speak, living in America like they did with Pontius Pilate in Jesus' day, and they put him in the country to rule the country. That's called imperialism. All the empires of antiquity ruled through the natives. They put the natives in charge. But Rome said, we're not going to use the natives. We're going to put our own people there. We're going to use our own garrisons, and that's called imperialism. And guess what? Guess what stage is next? The one world stage. The one world stage, my friend, is where you and I are seen in the world. And guess what will be brought in the one world stage? Imperialism. Eventually, you and I will see the UN exert more influence in this United States and perhaps tax American citizens that we have never seen before. But it's coming. It's coming. The UN wants more influence into our country. That's why the leftists don't want borders. 
That's why the leftists don't want national sovereignty. That's why in the schools, they're discouraging kids from the Pledge of Allegiance or any form of patriotism and replacing patriotism with what's called multiculturalism or diversity or tolerance. Those are the catchphrases. It's not about celebrating somebody's culture. What it is, is dogmatic brainwashing to say, America's bad and we should embrace globalism. That's what the brainwashing of multiculturalism is. It is not a celebration of ethnicity. It is to demonize Western culture and embrace globalism. Folks, we're there. The next stage then will happen. It'll break into a 10-league confederation represented by the 10 toes of Daniel. And then eventually, as you see, the Antichrist will take over and rule it for the last three and a half years until Messiah comes back, which was represented by the, the stone that comes out of heaven, not cut out by human hands. And eventually, Messiah's kingdom destroys the statue, destroys all the, the, the governments of the world, and he establishes his government over the entire planet for a thousand years. That's what Daniel's talking about in chapter 2 and 7. John assumes that we know that already when he starts out and when he mentions that the city's going to be trampled on by the Gentiles for 42 lunar weeks, three and a half years. Now, why do I go through all of that? Because it's important that we understand. Even Jesus mentions this in the gospel about this times of the Gentiles. Notice it's in the gospels. Jesus mentioned this about the temple. This is in Luke 21, 24. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until what? The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So even Jesus makes note of this. Okay, what are the implications for us on a geopolitical level if you understand this? Practically, it means even if now Israel's back in the land and they have temporary control of the Temple Mount in the future, they won't have full control. Even today, they don't have control of the Temple Mount. It's under Jordanian custodian, custodianship, the Temple Mount. They don't have control of it. And it's predicted that from that point on in 596 B.C., from the Babylonian Empire until the second coming, Israel will not possess permanently the Temple Mount. They might have temporary control of it, but they will never have it permanently. Now, if I was Israel and knew Messiah, they would know this. And they would know that this temple is not sanctioned by God and know they will not have permanent custodianship until Messiah comes back. So they shouldn't do a deal with the devil but yet they don't know that because they're in unbelief. And yet that's why they will cut a deal with devil and create a temple on the Temple Mount. What does this mean practically, just on a geopolitical level in another way? No political maneuvering will ever get them back there. Even the Antichrist deal only lasts three and a half years. It's unfortunate, but anytime someone tries to do some type of peace treaty, think back. Oslo Accords, did they work? Nope. Camp David? No. I mean, you just keep going through all the little things we tried to get Israel in. It won't work. It's not going to happen from a biblical standpoint because it's predicted that it's going to be trampled by the Gentiles. They're not going to have full control. And when Jesus says that, he means it. 
Okay. That being the case, it's connected to two issues then. If we're talking about a remade temple, a new Jewish temple that we don't see right now, but it's going to be future, the Scripture then implies several other things. And the first thing we have to realize is that, okay, it's connected then to what Jesus warned about called the abomination of desolation. It's connected to that issue. And the abomination of desolation is talked about in Daniel 9.27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with the weak, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. What implies what? If there's sacrifice and offering, what, where are they doing that at? A temple. And on the wing of abominations, this term wing is the highest point of a temple, which would be the pinnacle. So on the pinnacle of the temple, so see that the, the high point? This is, believe it or not, this is a model of the third temple. The temple Mount Faithful want to build. This is it. You and I live in a time where you're seeing what the third temple looks like, even though it's not built yet. This is the plans. This is the architecture. I'm almost dumbfounded that I'm looking at the tribulation temple. You couldn't say this 50 years ago, but I'm looking at it. Okay, notice the highest point on the top of the temple? That's called the wing of the temple, the, the, the roof line. See where the roof line is? On the wing of that, the Antichrist will put his idol on the top of it, on the wing of the temple. It's for all to see. So CNN will be there lapping it up, MSNBC, ABC, they'll be there lapping up, and they'll be thinking this guy's the greatest thing since sliced bread when he puts his image up on the top of the Jewish temple, which is now called the abomination of desolation. It's an idol of himself, basically, on this. So it, it, it's, it's amazing. Let me show you another couple passages, and i got a video I want you to watch. It, it's spoken of in Daniel. He says, And shall be one who makes desolate. He's going to cause the desolation of Israel, even until the consummation, until the end, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate or Israel. So when he does this, the Antichrist, Israel will, will scatter because he's going to try to kill them. And it will make the whole country desolate because it'll be a second scattering of Israel. Some Israelites will get stuck in Jerusalem and they can't get out. Some will flee into Petra. But for the most part, he will kill them at that point in time. He makes Israel desolate. Jesus remarked about this in Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse about the end times. Therefore, when you see, he's talking to Israel, the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. So even Messiah warns that this is the sign. And you know what he says? Get out of Dodge. Get out. Don't get your coat. If you're on the roof, just go across the roof. Get out. Because he's going to try to kill you. And then and the other one is 2 Thessalonians 2. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. That's the great apostasy of the church. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's the Antichrist. Who what? Opposes, exalts himself about all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he what? Sits as God in what? The temple of God. Showing himself that he is God. So all of these passages presuppose a temple. And what Antichrist does is not only puts up an idol of himself, but because he's not God and can't be omnipresent, he goes back to his headquarters, Babylon, but leaves his image there. But the first abomination is he gets into the temple and says, I'm God. And Jesus said, when you see that, run, get out of there. Because he's showing you his true colors. 
He is the devil, son. He's the Antichrist. And, that, and, and so all this presupposes a temple to be built in Jerusalem. Well, that takes a lot of unpacking. If it presupposes a temple, a Jewish temple, not a Gentile temple, then it presupposes other things. What does it presuppose? Number one, Israel must be back in the land. Does it not? They have to be back in the land. Do you understand what you're seeing now? If the scriptures are saying a temple is coming, he's going to desecrate it, it requires Israel to be a country again. They haven't been a country since 136 A.D. Look at these clips. This is the, it's called the Palestinian Post. Can you believe it? They used to call it the land of Israel, Palestine, because Hadrian did it to stick it to the Jews in 136 B.C., and the name took. This is 1948 newspaper. State of Israel is born, May 14th, 1948. That's prophetically significant. Now, I think we have one more picture. Uh, and then they were celebrating when this happened in that country, and they all started f- going back. They had already started going back in the late 1800s, but it, it opened the floodgates after the Holocaust in World War II. Do you understand what you're seeing? We're that close. Israel was kicked out of the land for rejecting Messiah, and then God promised, I'm going to bring them back one day. And we saw that in 1948. That's prophetically significant. That's amazing that we see this. But one more thing, it presupposes that it requires Israel's control of Jerusalem, at least the old city, and the Temple Mount. See, in order to have access to the Temple, the Temple Mount, you must control the old city. When did Israel get control of the old city? God, a six-day war. Some of these pictures, and this is 1948, because once, once they got back in the land, they started fighting. This is 1948, because immediately they declared themselves a nation, and they had to start fighting the Arabs in the air. This is amazing. And this is 1948, what the Temple Mount looked like. It was all dirt by the Western Wall right there. You can see in that area. But then you go to the Six-Day War, which is absolutely a miracle. And through this Six-Day War, they routed everybody that was attacking them. And they just decimated other people's tanks and, and their airplanes and were totally outmanned. There's them looking down on the Temple Mount because they basically took back Jerusalem. That's East Jerusalem. They're standing on the Mount of Olives. And they had taken the Western Wall and the Temple Mount, and there's soldiers there. To see the guy in the middle with the patch, that's not a pirate, okay? <laughs> that's Moshe Diane. You all need to be familiar with Moshe Diane. He was, he was the, the general in charge of the Israeli army in the Six-Day War. And here's the interesting thing. They got back the old city, and they actually controlled the Temple Mount. Moshe Dayan, he walked on top of the Temple Mount. These are Jews, not Muslims. They had taken the Temple Mount. And Moshe Dayan was up there. And unfortunately, biblically speaking, I guess he didn't know this, Moshe Dayan gave back the Temple Mount to the Arabs. And you know why? He just uh, he said he didn't want a holy war. And he was a secularist, you know, so he didn't know all the things that you and I are studying right now. And so he gave the Temple Mount back, and now it's been under Jordanian control. And it's part of uh, what they consider East Jerusalem. Now, interesting enough, he actually complied with Scripture. How did he comply? Because Jesus said, and Daniel says, 
And even John says in Revelation, they will not have control of the Temple Mount until Messiah comes back. It will be under the hands of the Gentiles, and Moshe Dayan gave it back to the Gentiles. Didn't even know he was doing that. But anyway, that's the Six-Day War. Now, when I'm talking about this, they have to have control of the old city because the old city gives them access to the Temple Mount. If you can see the outline here, this little black outline, that's the outline of the old city. The rest of it's the new city. This is western Jerusalem. This is still western Jerusalem. And then you've got the Kidron Valley here, and then the rest of it is east Jerusalem. Okay? This is what the Palestinians want. They want this old city. They want the Temple Mount control of that. They want that to be their capital. And it's still under Jerusalem control. And Netanyahu should never give up the, gold, the old city. He shouldn't do that. Um, but anyway, that's where the fight's going on today. So when Trump, just to give you some political understanding, when Trump says, no, that's their capital, boy, that lights up the Palestinians. It lights up all the Arabs in the nation because they want that area. They want control of the old city and most of East Jerusalem, and they want to put their capital there. That's been the fight. So a lot of times they go to the peace process, and Arafat or even Abbas, they want that. And, that's, and now Trump has taken it off the table. It says, no, nah, it's not even for negotiation. It's Israel's in the story. And we're going to move now our embassy there. It's huge. You've got to understand the political implications of this with the Muslims. But nonetheless, you and I are privy to watch Israel have control of the old city. They're one more step away from getting the Temple Mount. You couldn't have said that in the 1800s when Mark Twain went through there. You are living at a time where this is happening. For people and other Christians to say, I don't see this, then you've got to be out to lunch. You just totally got to be blind to what's going on around you. How could you not see the Six-Day War and the miraculous nature of that? But it goes further. At some point, they got to get control of the Temple Mount. Here to here is what we consider the Temple Mount. This is where David, this is David's threshing floor that he bought. You remember that? This is where Solomon built the temple. This is where the rebuilt temple, what we now know as the second temple that we call Herod's temple, but it started with Ezra and Nehemiah in those days. And then Herod continued to finish the work and the second temple was destroyed. It's all right there. That's where it would have been. The future temple will be right there, right there. I honestly don't know how the mosques get off of that. Whether that's through the wars, through the covenant with Antichrist, I don't know. But what Scripture is saying is, trust God, the Jewish temple is going to be there, not a mosque. So whatever happens, that thing's coming down. So it requires that a third Jewish temple be built with the reinstitution of the Mosaic sacrificial system as well. Now, wait a second. Do you see how much this implies What's needed for all of this? It's just not you. Just, you can't just have a structure building. You've got to have a Levitical priesthood. Well, how are we going to do that? We've lost all the records in seventy A.D. All the genealogies of all the Jews were destroyed when Titus destroyed the temple. That's where all the records were kept in the temple. That's why you have to have a Messiah come prior to the seventy A.D. No Messiah coming after could ever claim any genealogy. And what does Matthew and Luke have? Genealogy of Jesus. Because after 70 AD, there's no records anymore. Most Jews living today don't know where tribe they're from. In fact, 
I would say 98% of them don't know. But the day and age we live in, something has happened. Let me show you some names. You see these names? Have you ever seen these names by people, people's last names? I know the furniture store here in Bakersfield. You'll love it at Levitt's. Have you ever seen that commercial? Levitt's is a Jewish name. I think of Mark Levin, the radio talk show conservative, Mark Levin. You catching something? Levi, Levi, Levine, Levin, Leventhal, Levitz, Levitt, Levinson, or a last name Cohen. I know there's lawyers with the last name Cohen here in Bakersfield, right? Anytime, guys, you see these last names, guess what? They're from the Levitical priesthood. Well, it's just a name. You know, the, the, you know people conjecture, well, you know, that, that could be from their mommy and daddy. We don't know. Wait a second. We got something else. This is even amazing that this has even happened. We have DNA now. Not just last names. We have DNA. Let me show you this doctor. This is Dr. Skorecki. He was sitting in synagogue one day, and he was hearing about the lineages and stuff, and he's a DNA expert. And Dr. Skorecki said, well, wait a second. If I'm hearing what I'm hearing from the rabbis in synagogue, and they're from the, the male lineage is from male to, uh, to father to son, father to son in the Jewish patrilineal understanding of the Old Testament, then he theorized then all the males will have the same Y chromosome. And guess what he did? He found the DNA expert, I think, out of Arizona. They came together. And this was in, like, think the, I want to say the late 90s that this was happening. When DNA was, you know, just on the cutting edge of things, they did a DNA analysis of these people with the last names, Levin, Cohen, all this other stuff. Guess what? It's blow you away. If you look at the DNA structure, they found in the DNA structure that these particular Jewish men with this last, these different last names all had the same Y chromosome, all had the same ancestor. And guess how far they traced the ancestor back? You ready for this? Your socks will blow right off your feet. With the DNA from today to or late 90s, I should say, they traced about 3,300 years of generations, about 106 generations through their lineage, these men living today. Guess the time where that traces you, the time of the Exodus. And all these Levin, Cohen, Levitz, Levine, all have the same Y chromosome to one ancestor. Guess who that is? Aaron. The Jews can operate today, guys, their temple, because now they have the DNA markers of the one tribe that they need to operate the temple. And they can do it now through DNA. And all they need to do is swab the inside of their mouth and do a test, and it'll show them if they have the common trait. Bingo! We're there. Couldn't have said that 50 years ago. You could not have said that 50 years ago. You now live in a time where they can do the markers for the Levitical priesthood. Oh, my land. Did I just see that? Did I just see 
the Levitical priesthoods preparing to serve in the future temple. Did I just see that? Oh, my land. Do you realize how close you are? How close we are? You would have never said that 50 years ago. Now they're training the priests? Whoa. Now, before you want to go out and support that, I will show you a passage in just a second. Do not financially support. We support Israel. We love Israel. But do not support the rebuilding of the temple. That is not sanctioned by God. And what they're doing is actually counter what God wants them to do. We love Israel, but they're doing something very wrong in this. By the way, I've showed you this other video, and I want to show you it now. Not only are they preparing the, the Levitical priesthood, they have the temple ready to go and the building structure and all the finances. They claim that they can put it up in 30 days. Now, again, I showed you a model of the temple. I think I showed you last summer what the temple looks like. I want to re-show you this video. Here is the third temple architecture structure already planned. Watch this video. This will blow you away. Amazing. And like I've said before, do not support that. We love Israel, but what they're doing is a direct violation of what God has already told them. There will be no more temple in this era. The next temple to be built is by Messiah himself in the tribulation, I'm sorry, in the millennial period of time, not now. Because he told the woman at the well, the time will come when, what? When those who worship God will worship him where? In spirit and in truth. They won't have to go to a temple during this period of time. And that is still good to, for today. Let me show you the violation that they're actually making right now. It's from their own prophet. It's not from a New Testament passage. It's from their own prophet, Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? It is a constant return to faith that God is asking them to do. Do not build me a house. I don't need one from you. I need something else from you. I need faith. Faith in my son is what he's trying to go. Look in verse 2. For all those things my hand has made, and those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. This one is the third temple you just saw right now. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's what I'm looking for from you, Israel. Poor in spirit a contrite, humble spirit, and trembles at my word, who follows my word. The problem is, Israel, you are building a temple because you don't follow my word. If you followed my word, you would not be building a temple. You would be worshiping my son. Because you don't follow my word and because you lack faith, because you're trying to do a substitute for faith and obedience, I reject that temple. So here's the rejection. He who kills a bull is as if a, he slays a man. I'm not going to accept your sacrifices in this temple because I'm going to, it would be like a, you doing human sacrifices for me, and I'm not going to accept that. He who sacrifices a lamb, if you do a lamb, it's like breaking a dog's neck in my temple, which was an unclean animal and didn't drain the blood. He goes, I'm going to see the, the sacrifice of your lambs as sacrificing of dogs. And he who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. Pork was illegal in that day, and you didn't sacrifice pigs. 
He goes, that's how I'm going to look at your offerings, as if it's like swine offerings. He who burns incense, as if he blesses an idol. You're, like, you're, you're the same as an idolater, just as they have chosen their own ways. You're doing your own thing, Israel, and their soul delights in their abominations. There's that word again. Your temple will be an abomination to me. And then I will show you how abominable it will be when the Antichrist creates the abomination, the desolation. I will show you. That beautiful temple you just saw in that video is the temple that the Antichrist will get in and desecrate. It's an abominable temple. And God's going to show that by letting that happen. He goes, so I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. They didn't respond to me. Even when I put them back in the land, Israel refused to come back to me. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes. How did they do evil and and chose that in which I do not delight? In the context, the doing of evil is the rebuilding of the third temple. That's the evil he's talking about. So that's why I'm saying don't support that. Don't, Don't give money to the Temple Mount Institute and give them money. You're supporting evil if, the, if you do that. I do not lie. I chose that which I do not lie. Hear the word of the, the Lord. This is to the remnant of Jerusalem or Israel. You who tremble at his word, your brethren, the Jewish brethren, who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified, that, may, that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. He's talking about the dividing line in Israel. The fight that's going to go on between the remnant and the non-remnant about the temple. The remnant will say no. The non-remnant will say we're building a temple. That poor guy that you saw who's training to be a Levitical priesthood that you saw in the video is in flat-out rebellion to God. I know he seems like a nice guy, but look what he's saying here. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple The voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. You will find out that you will be repaid for this. And it's going to be repaid by the Antichrist on Israel for creating this temple. I know that seems like a lot. And I threw a lot at you. But what's the point? What's the point of application to wrap things up? Israel is using a substitute temple rather than coming to faith in Messiah and then walking obediently to him. That's the substitute. That's what they're doing. The lesson learned for us is the same concept, same principle. In salvation, you cannot have substitutes. Otherwise, a substitute will lead you to hell. That's where I was going. But for most of us here, we've already went past the realm of salvation. We're already saved. Now it's the issue of sanctification. And in that sanctification, be careful of of accepting substitutes for your obedience, for your faith. Because they are out there and the devil will put substitutes for you. Yeah, you won't build a temple, but you'll do other things. Let me brief you on what those substitutes are. Thinking that knowledge of the Bible increases your spiritual maturity. It's only if you obey that knowledge it will increase your spiritual maturity. But if you can tell someone how many angels dance on the head of a pen, but you're not obedient to that, it won't help you. Knowledge, the scripture says, without obedience, puffs up. It does you no good to learn all these things and you not obey them. That's called a substitute. 
or having service as a substitute for our walk with the Lord. People think, well, I'm serving here and I'm serving there and serving there. And I'm spinning 17 plates at the church. I'm doing all these things. But behind the scenes, there's nothing real there. You're really not growing. That's called a substitute. You people can use service as a substitute. Well, if I'm sincere, Brandon, then I know that'll be okay. No, sincerity is a substitute because you're going to be sincerely wrong if you don't have the right information. All this stuff serves as a substitute. If we think our duty, just coming to church, is what's going to be rewarded, that's a substitute. It's just your duty. If we just think we're, well, we're just outwardly moral people, then that's okay. That's enough. Is that enough? Has God just called you just simply to be moral? No, he hasn't. It's more than that. He wants you to be moral, but the most Mormons can outdo the morality of most Christians. Most Mormons can outdo the service of most Christians. Most Jehovah Witnesses who are in a cult can outdo the services, and they're, they're, they're more diligent about what they do. So it's not about just being moral. No, no, no. It goes way beyond that. It goes beyond to the point of I serve when I, I sacrifice my time and energy for him. I don't serve him when I, it's convenient for my schedule. The problem with Christianity, and I made this point on our prophecy video, the world's not buying anything we're selling anymore. They don't see the real deal in us. It's fake. It's like I said on the video, it's like we work for Pepsi, but we're all drinking Coca-Cola. We just, no, no one's buying what we're selling. They look at our life. They look at what we do. They look at everything, and they're like, you have the same issues I have. Why would I want that? Because Christians are selling out to substitutes. They go to churches that don't convict them. They go to churches that make them feel good, and they feel like they, they checked the box. They did their duty. I'm good. Let's watch for lunch. And at the end of the day, that's, I think Christ would want more than that. I'm obviously speaking to the choir, and you know that. I'm speaking to the choir, but you go outside of this, and you're like, oh, my goodness, what's going on with Christianity? I can tell you, they're doing the same thing as Israel's doing. We'd rather build a temple unsanctioned because it makes us feel good. We can see it. We can put it there. We can put it on a checkbox and check it out. And God's saying, no, no, I don't want that. I want faith, and I want obedience, which is radically different. And a lot harder, by the way. And that's the same message we have to take for ourselves. Israel can make that mistake, and so can we. Let's take heed to what Israel did. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.